You're listening to your superpowered mind on the Superpower Up podcast, the show that investigates the innate power within your brain to create lasting change. Hello, everyone. Welcome to your superpowered mind. I am your host, Kristen Maxwell. And in this show, we explore the process of transformation and give you tools and strategies that you can use to transform your own life. Today, I am talking to Minda Zetlin about improving your career life. And Minda is the writer for the Laid Back Leader column for Inc.com. And after extensive research into real-world workplace issues, Minda has written a book entitled Career Self-Care, Find Your Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment at Work. And I was really excited by the idea of interviewing Minda because many, if not most of us, spend most of the hours of our days working. And with varying degrees of happiness and success. And so there are, for so many people, work can be a source of pleasure and a source of pain. So what I am really hoping to, you know, talk to Minda and get started with then is when we're struggling with difficult situations at work, what can we do to start to build a work life that leaves you feeling a little bit better? So anyway, welcome, Minda, to your superpowered mind. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yes, me too. And so, Minda, what superpower did you uncover as a result of mastering your mind? So I'm not sure I'd say I was mastering my mind, but uh, the superpower that I kind of gradually uncovered over more than a decade of writing this column and thinking about this stuff is to be easier on myself, actually, and to honor the needs that I have, that we all have to be human beings, as well as, you know, work-driven, work-obsessed career animals, which a lot of us also are. And um, interestingly, the more I learned about this stuff, because I was writing my column, the more I kind of put it into practice in my own life. And surprisingly, it was actually very beneficial for my career. And you wouldn't think... You wouldn't think, um, I am so sorry about that. There you go. You're getting distracted, just like real life and real work. Yeah, just like real life and real work. Let me silence that right now. No problem. Um, so my apologies for that. Um, so you're saying the, it was also beneficial for your career. So it was actually surprisingly beneficial for my career. And um what I discovered was it's a sort of surprising. Uh, you wouldn't think that doing things like saying, okay, I'm going to take one day a week and do no work whatsoever um, would make things better. You know, you, we kind of tend to think, oh, the more we work, the harder we work, uh, the more we'll get done, the better we'll get ahead, the more we'll succeed, the more we'll accomplish. When in fact, um, that's almost the opposite of true because there's actual research that shows that for most knowledge-based jobs, anyhow, working past 40 hours a week um, makes you less productive, not more. Mm. Yes. And the thing that's interesting, and 
that I see, you know, with my own experience and family and friends is that there's a feeling sometimes of feeling powerless of that you have to work more than 40 hours a week. Yes. Um, and, and that's true. We live in a society where uh, that is very much expected. And certainly depending on the job that you have, the industry that you're in, and various the boss that you have, <laughs> various yes, other factors, yeah. um, you might be expected to work a ridiculous number of hours. I've, I've had those kinds of jobs. Um, I had in, in my book, I write about a job that I had in the trade magazine publishing industry very early in my career. And um, that's a highly competitive industry. And there is an expectation. There's an expectation that if something's going on on weekends, you would work weekends. People would come into the office. Um, people would work really late. Uh, and ultimately, that doesn't work. Um, so if you're in a situation where you don't have that choice, the first thing is to know that ultimately that doesn't work. Um, and then to look for ways to push back against it when you can. And obviously, mm -hmm. all jobs have crunch times. And there's always you know, certain moments when everybody has to all hands on deck because there's a deadline or whatever. Um, but that shouldn't be every week or every month. And if it is, that's not good for anyone. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so much in there to unpack. I, I used to be a litigation attorney, so um, I worked way more than 40 hours a week. And I can still remember the Saturday morning that the partner called me and said, why aren't you here at work? <laughs> yep. Yep. I, and as I, I said, um, I'll remember um, the job that I had at the trade publishing house. I called in sick one day and I hadn't, I hadn't planned on being sick. I mean, sometimes you could tell you're coming down with something. This time I just woke up that morning and ugh, I was sick. So I called in and said, I'm so sorry, I'm sick. I'm not coming into work. And the question I got was, okay, what are you going to be working on while you're home? So, <laughs> I swear yes. to God. Yeah. This is why we need your book. So before we start to unpack, what could people can do Potentially, if they're in a situation like that, or you know, any other number of situations that come up at work, um, where can people find information about you and your new book? Um, well, the book is available for sale any place that you might buy a book. Um, and a great place for people to learn more about me is my website, which is mindazetlin.com. And um, you can find links to buy the book, to my columns on ink, to uh, my daily texts, to my newsletter, and, you know, basically 10 different ways to get inside my brain if that's what you want. Great. Thank you so much. Hang on, everybody. We will be right back and talk um, to Minda a little bit more about what can you do to improve your own career and work life. Hi everyone, I'm Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts. Are you ready to master your life? Are you looking for more calm and peace, connectedness in your relationships, more clear communication, guided thoughts, and a confidence in your ability to come up with creative solutions no matter what happens? Then join us at our next experience. Go to superpowerexperts.com and get signed up today. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm talking to Minda Zetlin. So Minda, I, I I suspect people kind of know a lot of this. 
And I don't want to get too stuck in it because I want to go into more what can you do about it. But what are the kind of challenges that people face at work? We already talked about one, for example, being in an industry or a job or a career or a corporation that expects us to work way more than 40 hours a week. What other kinds of things just generally do you see people struggling with? Well, I think I would put a lot of um, things under a single heading, and that heading is when you're at work, you're not allowed to be human. And that's um, a workplace tradition, maybe particularly in the United States with its Puritan heritage that goes back, you know, to the beginning of of work life itself. Um, When you're at work, you, depending on the setting, and you, I think, as a former lawyer, probably would have encountered this in particular, um, you're not allowed to express any personality in mm-hmm. how you behave, in your emotional reactions, in even how you dress the, you know, artwork or whatever you might put around your desk. And now I, I understand that a workplace is a shared space and that there's all kinds of um both clothing items and decorative items that could be offensive to people. And certainly we need to remain within the bounds of that. But um, in the course of researching one of my articles, I talked to a woman who had just had a baby and because it had been made very clear to her that mothers don't get ahead in the workplace where she was, she was what I termed a stealth mom. She put no pictures of her son, her brand new son around her office because she didn't want people to think of her as a mother. Um, that kind of thing is sad, but it also it sucks out our humanity, our creativity, our energy, and our enthusiasm about our jobs. Yeah, and that that is such a um, a difficult place to be. And I guess what what comes to mind is that actually, in some places, it really is um, a mark against you if you're a mother in perceptions. And then at that at that workplace it certainly was so she yes. went off and started her own company Good. Um, yes <laughs> <laughs> yes you're right um and you know sort of don't get me started because i am certain that many of the young successful men at the company that created that culture did have children and they had um mothers or other family members looking after those children so you know they could go to work and look down their noses at working women with kids but <clears throat> yeah, not go there because it's too infuriating. Yeah. yeah, no, it's true. I, I, yeah, <laughs> yes, we won't go there. Um, so one of the things that you, um, you know, if you are in a place where you're not allowed to be human, well, what does that do to people? You say you were saying it sucks out your humanity. And does it impact your work too, would you say? Um, It has to because um, if you are constantly masking, (laughs) to take a term Mm -hmm. um, from the mental health field, um, people on the autism spectrum talk about masking, about uh, disguising themselves so that they will seem more in keeping with, you know, the rest of the the, um, Mm -hmm. uh, neurotypical world. If you're essentially, and they talk about how exhausting that is for them. And if you're at work pretending to be someone who you aren't, um, that takes a lot of energy too. And that's energy that could be going into what you're doing. At the same time, when you are in a workspace where you feel like you're not accepted as the person that you are, 
Um, what's that going to do to you if you think about piping up during a meeting to, to articulate this great idea that you have? Um, what's that going to do to you when you think about volunteering for an assignment that might be challenging and that you know is going to be a bit of a stretch for your abilities? Um, what's that going to do to you if you're managing people and they need to feel trust and connection to you um, mm -hmm. if they don't entirely know who you are? The, all, all of that uh, can, really, um, can really impair your success at work. Um, possibly more than actually being yourself would. But most of us feel like that's not an option, that really being ourselves is not an option. Right. So what what would you recommend that people do? If this is something that they actually can, you know, I suspect it's happening with a lot of people without them even being aware that this is what they're doing. But if it's something that you're consciously aware of, I can't let people know, or I, you know that I have a really loud laugh or who knows? I mean, even things like that, what do you do? What would you recommend people do? Keep hiding it? Um, not no. hide it? I mean, I'm sure there's a balance. I'm sure there's a balance, but what have you seen? Well, like a lot of things, um, there's no simple solution. Mm -hmm. So I would say in most workplaces, and and I'll have to back up for a second and say that a lot depends on who you are and where you are in your career. If you're three months into your first job ever and you just graduated college, that puts you in a different position from if you've been in the corporate world or the, the industry or the profession for 20 years and you have uh, 35 people reporting to you, right? Those are not the same situation. Most definitely. Um, so acknowledging that for a second, um, I think... In general, and I think this is really probably the answer to so many problems, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. the thing to do is experiment just a little bit. So, you know, if you always wear the same button-down suit to work every day, not that anyone ever does that anymore, but mm -hmm. um, mix it up a little bit. Wear something that reflects your personality a tiny bit more. Um, put that fun family photo on your desk that you might be embarrassed about for whatever reason. Um, let your loud laugh out and see what happens. And if you just take very, very baby steps in that direction, you can pay attention to what the response is. And if, you know, you laugh really loud and everybody frowns at you, yeah, okay, maybe next time I won't necessarily do that. Or maybe it's important enough to me that I'll keep doing it and eventually people will have to get used to it. But if you start taking baby steps in the direction of being yourself and see what happens, you can decide how much, how much of yourself you want to be. Um, I do think, though, that most of us will be happiest and most successful in jobs where we feel like we can mostly be ourselves. Um, I, think it's, I think this masking business is hard and it drains a lot of energy. So... It could be that some industries and some professions and some companies just aren't the right match for you. And that's, you know, that might be the result of your experiment, too. Yeah. And I guess this is the thing that that, you know, I've, re I've read your book, which was great and very helpful. And I guess what what I keep wondering is sometimes. Sometimes the answer seems to be leave your job. 
like just find another job that's going to fit you better. Um, there's certain situations, but I know sometimes that that's not possible. So then the question is, is what do you do in those situations, you know, to feel better about yourself, to be, feel better about the work. And I, I think that's what a lot of your advice gets to is how do you show up in a way, you know, where you're feeling good, even if it's not perfect around you. Yeah. And that's, that's hard. So um, let me start by acknowledging that you're right. I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, if this job isn't a good fit, go find another one, especially in an economy where still we have historically low unemployment. And yet um, that's not an option for everyone all the time. Um, I think if you're in a job that doesn't feel like a good fit for you, or you're in a job that makes you unhappy, the most important thing I would have to say is don't, don't do nothing about it. Um, right. I mean, the power of inertia on human beings is very, very strong. So, so many times when we're in a a situation that's making us unhappy, we kind of just live with it because doing something about it would be uncomfortable and scary. Um, but there's lots of things you can do about a job that's making you unhappy that don't necessarily require you to quit and go find another one or, you know, go find another one and then quit, which is probably the better order of things. Right. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I mean, the vast majority, uh, apparently according to career experts, the vast majority of people who are unhappy in their jobs are unhappy in their jobs because of somebody that they are working with or somebody that they are working for. So mm. if you start from that knowledge, okay, is there, could I make a lateral move and report to somebody else? Could I volunteer to work with a different person and so spend a little bit less of my time with this difficult boss? Could I conversely, um, you know, I talk about this in my chapter on toxic people. Could I conversely um, find a way to have a better relationship with this um, boss or coworker who's making me miserable? That's hard. I'm not (laughs) suggesting it's easy. I'm not suggesting it's always possible. But sometimes getting to know somebody a little bit better and understanding what makes them tick can help you um, deal with a difficult relationship. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I just found that to be the case in my life and in in other relationships that I've observed. So it's it's often worth a try. Uh, So there's many different things that you can try to be happier in your job that fall well short of, you know, uh, take this job and whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and so I I, I want to go into um, a little bit of you. You have a very interesting chapter on the types of toxic people that people often end up, you know, being stuck working with or for. Um, what are those types of toxic people? Because it does help to be able to recognize them. Oh, this is what they're doing. Um, yes. So um, so I do talk about types of toxic people and. Um, you know, you're going to, you're, you're quizzing me here. We'll see if I remember them all off the top of my head. Um, one type of toxic person that, um, uh, that I, I think, you know, we all have probably encountered somewhere is manipulators, people who try and get us to, um, do things that may or may not, uh, you know, with with may or may not have an ulterior motive. I think, you know, we've all been manipula- manipulated one way or another. Um, I think the best way to deal with a toxic person who's a manipulator is to recognize their manipulation, because once you do that, 
uh, it's a lot easier to um, to defend against it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's passive aggressive people. I think we all have passive aggressive people in our lives. I this is something that I myself have been guilty of um, more than once, and um, yeah, we all have, I think. But it's probably a particular sin of mine, and I uh, describe a, a particularly uh, toxic passive passive aggressive thing that I did when I was a teenager um, in the book. Um, there are, conversely, there are people who are the opposite. They're um, what you might call anger mongers. <laughs> that's, uh-huh. that's what I call them. Um, and they are people who will uh, absolutely um, uh, lose their temper and pound on the table and yell and scream and, um, uh, you know, so, so what happens is you get into a, uh, a situation where you, you don't want to confront them and that just makes things worse. And so you, you, you know, you tiptoe around and, and then that's some, mm-hmm. you know, and then really the only way to deal with an, an anger monger is to stand up to them, unfortunately. Um, you know, there's narcissists. We've all we've all encountered narcissists. The biggest problem with narcissists, of course, is that unfortunately they tend to wind up in the corner office because, um, and we, you know, and we've seen this a lot. There's a lot of research that shows this. People who are super confident and believe in themselves and will tell you over and over again, you know, how good they are at what they do. Um, unfortunately, uh, repetition breeds belief, and so people tend to believe them, and so um, narcissists are running the world. Um, you know, the best way to deal with a narcissist probably is to flatter them. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. So, so that's a that's a quick run through of um, some of the uh, toxic people that that I talk about in the chapter. But, you know, the other thing that I that I love to point out in, in you know, and this is one of the reasons I told the story about myself, is that all of us in certain situations become toxic. We just all do. Mm-hmm. And watching out for your own toxic behavior is probably just as important as figuring out how to deal with it and other people. Right. Yeah. How are you, how are you um, perpetuating it and creating more of it? Yeah. And I, I, one of the things that struck me while I was looking at it is, you know, there are certain people, you know, for example, especially with anger mongers in the law firm, I had colleagues who grew up in families where, they fought. That was what they did. That's how they related. She, one of them in particular, loved conflict. And I hated conflict. <laughs> and so it was very different because people, somebody would yell at her and she'd be fine. And somebody would yell at me and I would go into, oh my gosh, I'd like shock. Like, how can you be yelling at me? I'm not used to that. So it's also just sort of recognizing that your background and who you are and what you're used to can also impact it. Yes. And, and it was actually, it was a really big aha for me because she would be like, well, I don't think anything of it. That, 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 that could even be a viewpoint you could take that if people are yelling and they're angry and they're conflict, it's like, well, yeah, it's fine. Like that had never occurred to me. That is a hundred percent true. And um, I'm trying to figure out how to tell this story without, eh. well, I have, so, so in my life, um, 
and this is a life, not a work story, but I think yeah. I think it applies kind of the same. Um, I have a half sister whom I love very much, but she and I mostly have not spent our lives together. She um, lives in the Philippines, halfway around the world. Her father is different from my father. I grew up in a very different sort of family than she did. And um, she's, I'm not sure I'd exactly say she's an anger monger, but she does, when she gets angry, she, she lets fly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this was particularly true when she was a bit younger. And, you know, I can handle a good argument, but when somebody really flies off the handle, um, I can't cope with that very well. And so we, one day we got into a disagreement where I said something completely um, that, uh, that made her very angry, even though I, it had seemed innocuous to me and I, Mm -hmm. I didn't immediately understand why it made her angry. Um, She flew off the handle and she started ranting and I just couldn't figure out what to do. Um, I couldn't figure out how to respond and I couldn't handle it. So I was, I was staying with her at the time and I just walked out and went into my bedroom and closed the door. And what I discovered afterwards was that was 100% the wrong thing to do. Um, It opened up a gigantic rift between us that took a long time to heal. And what I realized is that was, um, you know, I was really sorry in retrospect that I did that. And what I learned from that is that when someone is like that, walking away from them, um, you know, and in, in the moment, it might seem like, okay, we both get a chance to calm down, but it can make things really worse, especially, you know, if it's someone with whom you don't have the world's most comfortable relationship to begin with. So that's why I say, uh, you know, when someone is like that, you have to figure out how not to run away from them. <laughs> that's what I think I learned from that day. Right, right, right. And there, I'm, so it's how not to run away and how also not to get engaged and, and as triggered as, as potentially. Yeah. It's interesting. It's people. And yes, it's people. I think there's a, there's a, by the way, I think there's a big difference between engaged and triggered. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think that's exactly what my sister needed from me was for me not to disengage from her, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, for various reasons have happened to her a lot. Um, right. What, I needed to do, you know, something I had done had triggered her. So I needed to not also get triggered and I needed to not disengage. And in the moment that was so difficult to do. Um, Mm -hmm. It often is. Yeah. It takes a lot of um, self-knowledge, I think, to not get triggered in these things. But I, I, this is also, I could see how this would really help to understand the people that you're working with and their patterns and maybe take them a little less personally, yes. not getting so triggered. And, you know, and, to, and to, to return to the world of work that we're supposed to be um, talking about, yeah. I have seen um, situations where, you know, you have a group of people and one of them does tend to fly off the handle and, you know, um, bang the table and whatever. Um, and because it was a group that didn't meet very often, the rest of the people in the group just kind of waited it out. You know, nobody mm-hmm. ever really confronted this person about it. Um, What I discovered afterwards is that there were um, members of the group who left because they couldn't take it. And Mm -hmm. so just letting that stuff go, even though in the, in the moment it's, it seems easier um, and it is easier. um, Isn't always constructive. Right. Yeah. 
So there is the, it's that balance of learning to stand up for yourself in an untriggered way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and creating boundaries. Yeah. 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 yeah that's like, like with, just the easy stuff, you know? Yeah. Just the easy stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the things you also talk about is the power of community and how important it is to have a community either in your work or outside of it in your industry. You want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, so in the chapter about that, I talk about blue zones, um, the the research about um, specific locations around the world where people live into their hundreds to a, to a greater degree than the rest of us. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I mean, and, and all these people have a lot of what you would expect in common. They eat mostly a plant-based diet. Um, they, you know, even into older age, they do a certain amount of exercise every day and, you know, all the stuff that your doctor told you to do, right? They do all that. But um, what they also all have is uh, some sort of strong community around them. And there is research that suggests that that business of being in community, being surrounded by people, um, actually causes us to live longer. It, if you think about it from sort of a Darwinian point of view, that makes total sense because in a group, you're assisting the survival of others, you're contributing to the entire tribe and not just yourself. So you become in some way more valuable. And I think um, to this day, there's a lot of research that shows that isolation and loneliness does kill you, that it might in fact be as bad for you as smoking. So this business of being in, in a community, um, I can't stress how important that is just to us as human beings, but in relation to work in your career, it's also incredibly powerful um, in so many ways. The more you have every person who's in your community who is a colleague or somebody who works in the same company as you or somebody who works in the same industry or the same profession as you um, multiplies your knowledge, your ability to understand and your ability to figure out um, a workplace challenge um, X-fold. Yes. And it also gets you, I would imagine, then potential support when you're dealing with um, difficult situations. With a, lot, a lot of the stuff we talked about. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, that I'm sure people are saying, well, where am I going to find a community or I'm really shy and quiet? You know, what, what do you say about that? Well, okay. So that's two, two separate questions. Um, so the first one's easier to answer. I think, um, where am I going to find a community? Um, look around. There are so many different communities online, offline, um, in the workplace. Um, if you make friends with someone, if you, there's no one in your workplace who you like, um, is there an industry trade group that you could join? Is there a professional trade group that you could join? Is there um, a local group of working people that relates in some way to your life circumstance? Like, you know, like uh, where you live? Is there like a local community of people doing business, a rotary club, um, uh, mommies at, at 
you know, working mommies playtime club. Um, you know, there's, there's so many ways it's so deeply ingrained in our human instinct to gather that there are just any number of gatherings. And, um, you know, I mean, the thing is that it takes work because you check out a group, you go to a group, you attend a few events or whatever. Uh, it's really not a fit for you. Okay. You have to go find something else and that's a pain to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is absolutely worth it. Um, so if you're a shy person, um, that is harder. I think um, introverts have do may have the instinct to, to shy away from gathering in groups. Um, online communities fulfill some of that. I, I do think real life communities are better, but online communities can be very powerful and a little bit less challenging to um, to I, to a to people who are introverted and B I also have to say people who may have difficulty going physically going to meetings for you know any any number of reasons including um, you know small children at home um, health issues um, you know uh, where they live and so forth so that's a great uh, that's a great alternative if that's what you need um, but I encourage people to push themselves just a tiny bit. Don't, you know, don't do immersion on yourself. Don't, you know, throw yourself into someplace where you're going to have to be surrounded by thousands and thousands of people if crowds make you uncomfortable. But also don't just sit home. Find, you know, a place to go to with maybe three other people and try that out. Because the more you give in to those kinds of, um, to those kinds of feelings, the harder it's going to be to overcome them. The more you push the boundaries just a tiny bit, the easier it's going to be to step outside those boundaries next time. Yeah. Yeah. And even just going and giving yourself permission, maybe not to say anything. Yes. <laughs> just to absolutely. be there at first. That right? absolutely, you know, go and, and stand in a corner. Go and yeah. say, I've done, I've done that kind of thing myself. I'm, I'm, as you can tell, probably fairly outgoing and not shy. But there are times when I'll go someplace and just sit in the back and observe because I don't feel part of the group yet and I don't fully understand it. And that's a perfectly valid thing to do. Yeah. And you know what, we're actually really running out of time, but what I would love is very quickly, you had some really good suggestions also on ways to start conversations with people. Ah, okay. Just run through those really quickly. Cause I thought those were quite helpful. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how much time there is, but um, let me start with a, with two, um, principles for starting conversations, both of which will help overall. So the first is um, you may think that people don't want to talk to you. Most of the time that kind of gets in the way of us talking to strangers. Yep. Um, and, and, and there will be people who don't want to talk to you. Don't get me wrong. But the majority of people are more interested in talking to you than you realize. Um, that's just research has shown that and common sense shows that because humans actually are interested in other humans. So Start with the assumption that people will want to talk to you, and most of the time you'll be right. Um, the other thing is that you can interest people in you if you show an interest in them. And it's a great way to start a conversation is to make it about the other person. Um, so this is why I often uh, recommend asking a question. You know, if you just saw a presentation, what did you think of the presentation? For example, that's an easy one. If I'm at a conference, are you having a good conference? That's one I use all the time. Um, 
You know, I mean, people talk about the weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a cliche, but there's a reason people talk about the weather, which is that it's a universal experience, right? right. If it's zero degrees out, um, then, you know, we were all cold on our way here. So that's a, a pretty, uh, pretty safe conversation starter. Um, the other thing is the Ben Franklin effect, which I talk about briefly. Um, I think that's a, it's a great thing to use in life and it's a really great thing to use in conversations. Um, Ben Franklin, uh, many, many years ago, had an antagonist in the Pennsylvania legislature. This, this guy just hated him. And Ben Franklin didn't know why he hated him, but he solved the problem. And the way he solved the problem, I think, would be counterintuitive to a lot of people. He asked his enemy if he could borrow a very valuable book that this guy had. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that came to be called the Ben Franklin effect. Um, if you ask someone for a favor and, and they give you, do the favor. Now, if you ask someone for a favor and they say, no, this is not going to work at all. But right. if you ask someone for an easy favor that they might be flattered by the request and therefore they do it for you, now they've done something nice for you. If they don't like you, that sets up cognitive dissonance in their own brain. Oh, I did something nice for this person, but I don't like them, but I did something nice for them, but I don't like them. That's uncomfortable. So what they'll do is they'll revise their opinion of you to the more favorable. So when I want to start a conversation with a stranger, if I can, very often I will ask them for a small favor. Um, can you tell me when such and such is happening? Do you know the way to this or that? Can you hand me that thing over there? Um, when people do you a favor, it predisposes them to like you. It's, it's weird, but it's a brain science and it works. Wow. That's so cool. That's a really good thing to keep it. And it can be something simple. Yeah. Can you watch my stuff or, you know, hold my seat or something? So yes. One of my ink, um, ink colleagues, um, watch this guy at a car dealership over and over, spill something on the floor. And then when customers were wandering around, he would ask them if they would hold his clipboard while he cleaned it up. Oh, that's so funny. And that would start the conversation. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, you don't need much to start a conversation. No. That is great. Um, can you remind people very quickly? Um, well, or actually I will. You can find Minda at mindazetland.com. And I will actually include that also in the show notes, of course. Um And the name of your book is Career Self-Care. So thank you so much for being here and, you know, sharing, you know, these are tough issues. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you. It really was. And listeners, thank you for being here. Until next time, go out and remember that you do hold the power to change and transform your world. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today. 